The IEEE Quantum Podcast Series aims to inform on the landscape of the quantum ecosystem and serve as the leading community for all projects and activities on quantum technologies. This episode features Pete Jadbolt, co-founder and chief scientific officer of SciQuantum, a Palo Alto-based startup building the world's largest silicon photonic quantum computer. Pete discusses the challenges and likely benefits of achieving a million qubit fault-tolerant quantum computing system. Pete also shares his insights on why students and young professionals might want to further explore this growing field. Pete, thank you for taking time to contribute to the IEEE Quantum Podcast Series. To start, can you give our listeners a brief summary of your background leading up to your current position? Yeah, sure. So uh, I'm Pete Chappell. I'm a co-founder at SciQuantum. Um, So I've been working on quantum computing for about 10 years. Uh, Prior to uh, starting the company, I worked in academia, um, initially as an experimentalist. So I spent uh, about five years at the University of Bristol in the UK, uh, building and testing small photonic quantum processes. Uh, I went from um, Bristol to Imperial College, uh, where I worked with uh, one of my co-founders, Terry, on the sort of math and theory of uh, fault-tolerant optical quantum computing. Um, And then I moved out here to California uh, five years ago now to start this company. So, Pete, how did you first become involved with IEEE? Yeah, so um, I spoke at uh, IEEE um, rebooting computing uh, back in, in 2019 at, uh, in, in San Mateo. And I think what's interesting about PsyQuantum is that, um, you know, our, our thesis is that in order to build a useful quantum computer, we're going to have to leverage the incredibly powerful tools of the semiconductor industry, um, chip manufacturing, basically. And so um, relative to some quantum computing that some quantum computing companies that are more uh, close to, you know, physics research or ion trapping or something like that. Um, we do a lot of semiconductor manufacturing work, and that puts us in a position of, you know, uh, I hope being interesting to uh, uh, people from IEEE and, yeah, really enthusiastic to engage uh, with, um, with you guys. So what are your views on the current state of the quantum computing space, uh, particularly in comparison to your company's approach? So, um, you know, quantum computing is an idea that is uh, decades old now, and there are all sorts of large and small teams of people uh, working very hard to bring this technology to life. I think the biggest shift and one of the main um, uh, aspects of differentiation for PsyQuantum uh, is around whether you're building a big quantum computer or a small quantum computer. And what I mean by that is that uh, five years ago, um, I think it's fair to say the sort of uh, default position if you were starting a quantum computing company uh, or pursuing this technology was to take the uh, demo systems that we all had in our university research labs scale them up by about an order of magnitude to get into the regime of about 100 qubits and hope that we would find commercially valuable applications with those systems. That's what's referred to as NISC or noisy intermediate scale quantum computing. And it was a very sensible idea uh, five years ago to to try that approach. 100 qubits, even without error correction, that's a system that's very, very hard, if not impossible, to simulate 
uh, on a conventional supercomputer. And so the, the reasoning that, you know, hopefully there's something we can do that's useful with a system like that was um, uh, certainly defensible. Cyquantum, on the other hand, took a very different approach when we started the company, which was to exclusively target a fault-tolerant uh, machine that could run error correction and thus continuously suppress error in the machine. And that's something that, you know, even uh, a decade, two decades ago, people thought would be necessary. Um, and we kind of staked our, our bet on the premise that it would be necessary and that you would need at least at least a million qubits uh, to deliver on the promise of quantum computing. That's, of course, a much, much larger system than the you know, 50, 100 qubit NISC systems uh, that we're seeing today. And so you asked about kind of the state of the, um, the space. I think you know, over the last five years, a lot of time and money has been spent on NISC. Um, people have made extraordinary scientific demonstrations of small-scale systems. And a lot of time has been put into trying to find algorithms that can do something useful despite uh, the errors and the noise that you see in these non-error corrected systems. And unfortunately, um, for the world, uh, nobody has found anything. So today, we do not know of any commercially valuable applications that can run without error correction. As far as the world knows, you still need a million qubits to do anything useful. And that's, that's sad, because it would have been a nice shortcut. Uh, but it's good for Psyquantum because we've spent um, all of our time and money over the last five years uh, on a million qubit machine and um, building the, the, the technologies that we need to actually deliver on a system at that scale, most notably uh, the semiconductor manufacturing piece. Um, so I think we're seeing the whole world uh, transition to a recognition that you're going to need uh, a large-scale error-corrected machine. And in fact, uh, Jeremy and myself were at the White House um, a couple of months ago where we saw uh, many of the big players in the quantum computing space openly acknowledging that you're going to need uh, a system of that kind of scale uh, to deliver on the promise of this, this technology. So I think that's a really interesting, encouraging, healthy shift uh, in the industry. So Pete, what are some of the initial challenges you face in trying to build a million qubit system? Once you um, recognize that you're going to need a million qubits, the type of technical work that you engage in becomes quite different. You know, if you're just trying to hack together a 50 qubit system, you can do that using the kind of techniques that you would associate with a university research group. If you're trying to build a million qubit system that's going to be, you know, building scale, very high power cryogenics, huge numbers of chips, you get into a completely different regime that looks much more like uh, building a conventional supercomputer and where your challenges are no longer quantum. The challenges that you're trying to solve are really more to do with cooling power, control electronics, connectivity, manufacturability. These are not quantum problems. And we're starting to see increasingly you know, serious investment and, and attention from the big players on solving those problems, which I think, again, is just healthy and, and positive for the whole industry. Can you give a little more detailed information on the engineering challenges faced in building a quantum computing system of this size? As far as the engineering challenges that you encounter once you set that as your target, um, I already touched on them, and maybe I can expand a little bit. So the first piece is manufacturability, where um, you need some way to manufacture millions to billions of components 
uh, with very high precision, uh, very good yields, uh, very good integration, very good performance. And our perspective from the beginning has been that there are really only uh, three uh, institutions on the planet who can do that sort of thing, and they are TSMC, Global Foundries, and Samsung. Uh, Intel, of course, is a special case. They got out of the foundry business. They're now getting back in. Uh, I should probably add them to that list. But um, these tier one semiconductor manufacturers are really unparalleled in their ability to manufacture huge numbers of components uh, that all work. And it's been our conviction for a long time that you basically have to build your chips, build your qubits in those extremely mature manufacturing processes if you want to have any hope of yielding millions of qubits that are actually going to work. Now, the challenge with that is that TSMC, Global Foundries, et cetera, are not in the business of doing crazy science fiction stuff like quantum computing. You know, they're building laptops and cell phones, and they are pretty uh, supply limited uh, in terms of um, uh, the, uh, the capacity that they have, especially right now where we're seeing automotive manufacturing lines shutting down because they can't get the chips. And so it's really pretty, pretty extraordinary as far as I'm concerned that we have um, gotten into that regime over the last couple of years. We've put six tools into the production line at Global Foundries. Uh, we're building thousands of wafers worth of silicon shoulder to shoulder with laptops and cell phones. We've introduced a brand new uh, superconducting material into that manufacturing process that's allowing us to build you know, very large numbers of quantum devices in that context. And that's been a, a huge amount of the work that we've done over the last couple of years. And then beyond the manufacturing, um, there are things like cooling power that are currently constraining all approaches to quantum computing. Um, if you need to cool things to millikelvin temperatures, it's very hard to get more than microwatts of cooling capacity, which is very, very limiting. Again, when you think about a million qubit machine. With photons, we are fortunate that, of course, the photons themselves don't feel heat. That allows us to run at a higher operating temperature uh, where we get thousands of times more cooling capacity today and where we ultimately expect to be able to access millions of times more cooling capacity um, than you can get at, uh, at millikelvin temperatures. So the fact that the photon is uh, indifferent to temperature, doesn't feel electromagnetic interference, that's, that's pretty ad advantageous. We also have advantages in terms of connectivity. So far, people have been able to show fantastic demonstrations uh, using individual chips. But of course, you're not going to fit a million qubits onto a single chip. You're going to have to connect chips together. And so the fact that we can just send single photons into optical fiber, the same optical fiber that you find in a data center, and we've already been able to demonstrate teleportation and entanglement between chips using that regular uh, optical fiber, that's a huge deal as far as you know scaling out and uh, building much larger multi-chip systems and something that's quite difficult uh, to achieve in competing approaches where you typically have to convert from quantum information stored in a matter qubit to quantum information stored in a photon, send that photon over optical fiber, and then convert back on the other side. That conversion or transduction is technically very challenging, even though it's not forbidden by the laws of physics. And then the final thing, actually, that's worth, worth touching on is the control electronics. So it seems maybe like a, um, an aside to the main engineering problem. In fact, it's absolutely, absolutely crucial and very limiting for um, scaling up current systems. We have been working very hard on that, and we now have 
a control chip with about three quarters of a billion transistors that is built in a conventional 22 FDX process at Global Foundries Dresden, and uh, we're able to run that chip at cryogenic temperature. So that gives us you know, much more sophisticated, much more capable control where we can put that control very close to the qubits themselves. And that's going to be really enabling uh, for building bigger and bigger systems in the future. So Pete, where do you see quantum computing making notable impacts? What applications do you think are ripe for quantum-based solutions? It's, it's worth saying, of course, it's absolutely possible that somebody will come through with a breakthrough NISC algorithm in the next few years. And I hope that they do, because it will make life easier for everyone. But we, along with many of the, the big players, are basically operating under the assumption that that's not going to happen, and we're going to need a, a big system. And then when it comes to applications for those big systems, there are kind of a handful of, of categories that we can put the known useful quantum algorithms into. Uh, code breaking is uh, probably the best known, uh, so factoring large semi-primes to um, break RSA encryption and, and similar. We don't think that's commercially particularly interesting, and it also requires a pretty big uh, quantum computer. Um, you will have heard a lot about optimization problems. Um, uh, as far as we know, optimization uh, is interesting on very large quantum computers, but doesn't seem to give you know, uh, profound speed-ups. And really, as far as we're concerned, the most interesting quantum algorithms for a first uh, system uh, pertain to simulating uh, things and specifically simulating quantum mechanics, uh, simulating molecules. And so that brings us to the engagement that we have uh, with our customers. We're very lucky to have uh, a list of uh, customers and partners from you know, Fortune 500 type companies. Um, interestingly, these, uh, these users have become you know, increasingly sophisticated over the last five years or so. Um, big banks, car companies, pharmaceutical companies, they are hiring PhDs in quantum information. They are teaching themselves about how to program quantum computers. And they're getting increasingly serious about preparing for the existence of this technology. And um, yeah, we are now working with uh, you know, a large bank, um, five large pharmaceutical companies, a large car company, uh, the list goes on, basically to write these algorithms and evaluate them um, in terms of the resources that we would be required uh, to actually uh, get a significant quantum advantage for these applications. And the majority of those are in uh, things like materials design, drug design, uh, designing uh, new catalysts for uh, lithium-ion batteries, so basically simulating molecules, simulating reaction chemistry, uh, that that type of thing, and that's that's again where we see uh, the most significant early um, advantages for quantum computing. Do you have any advice or insights that you can share with students or young professionals who might be interested in a quantum career? I talk to quite a lot of young people who are maybe um, software engineers, maybe they're semiconductor people, maybe they are um, from some field other than quantum computing, and they want to know whether you need a quantum background uh, to come and come and work with us. And um, I always make the point uh, that the answer is no. Uh, the majority of our engineering team uh, have no quantum background at all. And that's because the technology is reaching a level of maturity where most of the problems to solve are engineering problems 
as opposed to uh, quantum physics problems. And so we're extremely lucky to have such a you know experienced, powerful team of people who again don't necessarily have to have any quantum background. Um, on the quantum side, there is also you know a huge opportunity, and uh, you know we uh, fight tooth and nail to get the best people, uh, whether it's in quantum algorithms, quantum fault tolerance, um, error correction, etc. Uh, that's a deeply mathematical regime that absolutely requires, you know, an extensive academic education to, to do that type of work. Um, and uh, it's an increasingly sought after uh, skill set. I think what's interesting there is that there are a large number of people around the world working on NISC algorithms, uh, very smart people. Um, and increasingly, there are opportunities for people to instead work on fault tolerant algorithms. And that's quite a different type of work. So writing code, designing uh, the algorithms that are going to run on a fault-tolerant system um, involves a completely different set of trade-offs to what you might be used to uh, if you've been designing algorithms for NISC machines. And I think, um, you know, hopefully it's a, a kind of interesting opportunity for those people. Uh, and if they're interested in, in working on such things, they should get in touch with us. Pete, thanks for your time today. Do you have any final thoughts you'd like to share with our listening audience? Uh, well, I really appreciate um, I really appreciate you taking the time uh, and and inviting me to to speak. Um, uh, I've already said that it's a huge privilege for me to get to work on such an exciting technology, and uh, I want to give a shout out to a large number of uh, incredibly hardworking people, talented people who actually make this all move move along. Um, and then, yeah, I've already said this, but I'll re-emphasize. I think quantum computing is at a really healthy stage where we're seeing um, customers uh, and governments, you know, seriously engaged on the application side, increasingly um, enthusiastic about not just kind of dabbling in applications, but really doing that homework on fault-tolerant resource counting, really calculating with precision you know, how many gates, how many qubits you're going to require to do something that's genuinely valuable. I think that's a really, you know, new and mature uh, tone uh, for the, the applications work that certainly that we do with our, with our customers. And then um, on the hardware side, it's also just extremely exciting to be, you know, uh, embedded in an industry that is waking up to the fact that it's going to have to build a building scale machine and really getting serious about the very hard, very expensive, and totally solvable engineering problems associated with doing that. Um, so yeah, thank you so much for, for having me uh, on the call. And I uh, look forward to lots more interactions with IEEE. Thank you for listening to our interview with Pete Shadbolt. To learn more about IEEE Quantum, please visit our web portal at quantum.ieee.com. Dot org.